This is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you are listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 78, Rumors, Bargains, and Lies. Oh my. Rumors and bargains and lies. Oh my. Rumors and bargains and lies. Oh my. <laughs> Follow the Elbic Road stuck in my head. But I have the uh, the soundtrack to The Wizard of Oz, so I can go listen to it to get it out. There you go. Yes, lies, dirty lies, stinking lies. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, a whole lot of falsehoods in this episode. Um, so Delightful, uh, delightful falsehoods. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and yes, of course, it's another just title that just seems to be a title, but darn it, it really seems to fit this episode. So. Mm-hmm. So I it think, works. you know, we, we complain and fuss about, you know, but they're generic titles, but, you know, at most of the time, JMS is, follows through. But. By the time that we're getting to in this season, in, the, in this series, you know, we're midway through the fourth season of a very serialized uh, story. I think people, maybe he's just sort of playing uh, the odds that, you know, if you're in now, you're in regardless of the title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty safe bet, I think. Yeah. Um, but before we get into it, I, I, I'm curious. Um, did Stephen win Vehar bingo this time? <laughs> uh, in, in fact, he did. Yeah, not, not really. Not, not immediately. Uh, it actually took a while, but it was it was actually just as the it was after the cold open and just as the credits. Or what did he do it right before the credits? I can't remember, but it was it was later than mm-hmm. than you, he usually says anything. So he had just been sitting there watching quietly, and then he kind of tilted his head a little bit, and then he kind of leaned over and he said, "My Vader is pinging a little bit." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." And then, of course, as you know, all and I didn't remember if this was a Mike Vehar episode or not. Right. Uh, so as the as the the names of the guest stars are coming up, mm-hmm. and and the and it took DP longer and the than- writer usual i think they, they were yeah. still showing credits like way into the scenes yeah it was yeah. like into the second the second scene already yeah. and every time it flashed up this was like it was extra suspense for me because i was like <laughs> i want to see if he's right so finally when it happened and it says mike behar steven made a, he made a finger gun at the screen and went <laughs> he was very happy love it, love it. you know now, i wondered because the, the 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 first scene the opener mm-hmm. um just I personally found myself cringing through a lot of it. It just was just felt very hokey for them to like come one after the other in a line to Mm -hmm. be seen nodding at Sheridan. And then the, you know, Sheridan, you know, here's corny, silly Sheridan back. We haven't Mm -hmm. seen him for a while and being being such a goof and, you know, and all the unnecessary. Well, I guess necessary exposition, depending on who you're talking to. No, but but still the fact, you know, having to deal with it, it's like. About the only thing that rang true for me um, was, you know, Ivanova's line, you know, would you like to share with a group that, you know, that was the <laughs> point when I started feeling drawn in. So I wondered because it did not mm-hmm. feel as smooth as Vehar stuff usually is right away. Well, it really was con- nice and kind of Vehar to give uh, Sheridan space to pull his chair in uh, across around the table. Mm-hmm. But well, I you know that I, I noticed that as well. But they also were trying to include him in the conversation to start with, so well, it did yeah. make sense that nobody was going to sit with this, yeah. their back to him. I have to say though, we need an award uh, needs to be given to JMS and posthumously to Jeff Conaway for the as you know Bobbyist as you know Bob line <laughs> in human history. 
<laughs> the very first line of this episode is in one breath, basically. Last episode. Zach, Zach summarizing the plot of the last episode. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty delightful. But actually, now no, that I'm, I'm it's looking... not delightful. Not in any way, Erica. <laughs> no. Oh, what what, what like was delightful that. was the possibility that. Um, what kind of got me was uh, whether or not uh, Bruce Boxleitner was supposed to pound the table the way he did. Because it seems like he got everybody else. I think he legitimately mm-hmm. scared Claudia Christian. I think and so, too. I, and I think uh, Jeff Conaway literally started corpsing on set at the towards the end of that cut. Because uh, when they do the reverse angle, he's kind of stone-faced. Mm-hmm. I'm just so, saying. Right? I mean, yep. we're we're getting a lot of mileage was... out of the cold open here, but um, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, but now that I look at my notes, it wasn't the cold open. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe Steven's Vadar was pinging during the cold open as well, but it was it was after that. It was during the uh, the scene, the first scene of um, Delenn right. and and Lanier. That was yeah. when he leaned over and said that, and then sure enough, he was right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have Mike Vehar back, and uh, that that I I certainly noticed things this time around that I would have not noticed uh, before we started doing this podcast, and these kinds of things started uh, being brought to my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get into it with uh, what you need to know. Since the breaking of the Grey Council during the Shadow War, the careful balance in Minbari government set up by Valen has been crumbling, and Delenn has begun to try and address the situation before civil war can break out. Sheridan has been trying to get the League of Non-Aligned Worlds to allow the White Star Fleet to patrol in the face of the new threat from the Drach, but so far only managed to win the Narn and the Centauri over. Which leads us to this episode. Sheridan uses rumors to reverse psychology the ambassadors of the Non-Aligned Worlds into insisting on enacting his plan of White Star patrols. Delenn bargains with Naroon in an attempt to find a quick and peaceful outcome to the fighting on Mimbar between the religious and warrior castes. Lanier lies to protect his image of Delenn when he stops a sabotage attempt by his fellow members of the religious caste who believed Delenn was going to surrender. And that is rumors, bargains, and lies. I see what you did there. (laughs) I amuse myself sometimes. Um, So we've got basically... Um, we're kind of a slight throwback. We're back to two plots, uh, two things happening. We're not focusing on just one thing. Um, we've got, uh, the A plot with Sheridan and the B plot with Delenn is what I put in the notes, but you know, they're pretty much 50, 50, uh, as far as importance. Um, so starting with, uh, Sheridan's shenanigans. Um, and I liked, (laughs) I like that. Very nice. And I really, other than, um, and I'll get to it in a few minutes. Some in, in a few places, overacting, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, among among various people on, in this episode, not just any one person, but several of them. I really liked uh, seeing Sheridan uh, come up with this. I really liked how JMS uh, decided to treat his audience like intelligent people and just played it out and refused to tell. This is what Sheridan's doing. You know, Sheridan doesn't tell any of the others what he's doing. He just gives them the orders or, you know, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. He gets the chess pieces in place. But, you know, he lets the audience figure out the game. And I really liked that. I appreciate that a lot, too. 
But <laughs> there are an awful lot of other characters in this episode who are possessed at one point or another with the idiot ball. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's what I found frustrating. Um, because, first of all, I, I, I like the fact that we sort of had to figure it out, like you said, but I feel like Sheridan should have told some of the other uh, some of his other command staff at least i mean it looks like he probably told dr franklin because he very yeah he acted like he knew yeah either told franklin or franklin figured it out yeah but you know ivanova like i suppose i suppose they're old friends so maybe he sort of took some pleasure in just watching her flail and figure it out maybe i'm just i'm trying to headcanon this for myself and it's not entirely working because Mm. it just seemed like it seemed like a bad move because i was i was a little bit worried that she could somehow blow it for him like yeah not on purpose whether telling her what his plan was would make her presentation on the voice of the resistance more believable or less believable Mm -hmm. i mean what we got was pretty much you know not very believable and I don't right. know if he, if he had told her, this is what I want to do, if she could have done something to improve it. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of lampshading here. And I think one of the things that's going on here is that JMS thinks that this is really funny and mm, thinks yeah. that this is uh, ironic in a deeply, uh, in, in, in a deeply <laughs> meaningful way. And... I think that it's almost a little too much a little too much confidence, a little too much hubris in how clever he's being, both in the humor and in the irony. So it's it it's it's broader than it needs to be. But it's kind of fun. So yeah. I keep ba- I keep balancing back and forth on, throughout watching this episode on how much I'm digging it or not. Uh, and yeah. I think I, I think I ultimately come down on, yeah, I'm digging it. This is fun. This is funny, but it's not as, it's not as clever as I think JMS thinks it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think some of the over the topness, like Shannon alluded to in the performances, doesn't help, which surprises me a little bit because I feel like usually the Mike Vehar episodes get really, really good, solid performances, but. I mean, this is a, a wackier episode than a lot of the yeah. other ones that he has done. So, I mean, certainly people look like they're enjoying it. Like, obviously, the actors are all having a good time with this. But mm-hmm. it did feel... I kind of felt like the, the League of Non-Aligned Worlds was a bunch of gullible, silly children. Uh, that's yeah. just sort of how they came off. Which... Chickens with their heads cut off in that mm-hmm. one particular scene where they all it decide must to decide be an invisible, invisible enemy, and then it's yeah, just what? like they all scatter frantically. Yeah, that that was mm-hmm. one of the points that pushed it into the oh my god, why did guys come on rein it in? Because mm-hmm. several of these actors, the actor who does um, the Drazi and the actor who does the Burkiri, are normally solid performers, mm-hmm. and this is you know it, it gets a little bit better in the. Um, in the um, council chamber, when oh. when the Burkiri is taking the lead, and you know, th- th- and then it smooths out. But still, it's it's yeah. hard to get that image out of my yeah. head. And and I do love the the juxtaposition of uh, the Burkiri and the other non-aligned worlds smugly thinking that they've put one over on Sheridan. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and the and the payoff when he's uh, shouting in the uh, yeah. elevator. That's great. Um, I, I do like I, I do like where we wind up, and mm-hmm. I also think that there's something really interesting here about. I've I've said a few times before about you know JMS seems to be really invested in his good guys being good guys, um, mm-hmm. the 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 nobility of uh, the the army of light, the nobility of Sheridan, um, and all this other stuff. Um, so this is Sheridan being full on Machiavellian, although <laughs> although JMS is very careful and. Sheridan is very careful. It's Doylist and Watsonian here. Everybody's really, really careful. Say, you know, we're not lying. We're just, we're just mm-hmm. presenting the truth in a way that plays to people's suspicions. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've still, we still can't be propagandists uh, on mm-hmm. Babylon Five. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is him being manipulative, and I do like that we are going somewhat into this grayer territory. Uh, I just, uh, it's just, it, it's, at, it's at one point fascinating and at the other point infuriating because it's mm-hmm. not quite that clever. Yeah, the yeah. thing that tips it over um, to overall really good for me is that we get to see Peter Jurisic go to town. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Londo's, Londo's, especially the second scene with him and the Drazi in his quarters uh, mm-hmm. of, of, get, of getting Londo... Well, no, and, and with Sheridan too, because when he's talking about you know Earth Earth stuff, and I you know I don't get all this Earth stuff, um, that that's a good scene too. But both of those scenes just um, just let Londo be pure Londo again, which we haven't seen in a long time. I actually like those scenes with Londo even better than I like some of the other ones because, uh, well, actually the the second one specifically with the Drazi because some of the times when Londo is being big and bombastic, it's just it's it's skating a little close to the top for me. But in this case, he has been told to deny something that he knows is true, right? And he's frustrated by that, and he just lets that frustration come out in his denial, and it is delightful and one hundred percent believable in in character and in world. So I, I really I really liked that, and I think I do end up on the on the positive side overall because like chip said I, I i love the bones of this i think the bones of this story and this idea are great um but i think i guess it must have just been a deliberate choice uh probably on jms's part to to have this be one of the lighter episodes and sort of bring some you know a little comic relief into the story which you know has been fairly fairly heavy for the past past little while mm-hmm. and if i I feel like at the time, especially sort of in the 90s, when you had 22 episodes of television in a season like that's, you kind of needed a little bit more of those those ups and downs and coming at it from today's TV watching style. It it doesn't feel as smooth as I probably did at the time. So now as a as a as a current, you know, t- as a time traveler, time traveling back in time <laughs> to the 90s, it I, I wish that the comedy had not been played up so much. And then I think that this would be a, a truly great episode in my in my heart because I love the idea that he's that the Sheridan is being manipulative in this hilarious way. Uh, and I think to me it would be funnier if the characters were less funny, if that makes sense. I agree completely. It there's I I see a through line here between this and the Zathras scene last time. Mm-hmm. Um 
this desire to let the characters and let the actors and let the script writer have some fun. And I wonder if part of what's feeding into this is the sense that, you know, this is the fourth season. They mm-hmm. didn't know whether or not they were going to get a fifth season. Mm. Let's just go out with a bang and have some fun along the way. You know, that mm-hmm. may have that may have fed into this a bit. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think helps pull this uh, plot line uh, over the top is um, there's some really masterful directing choices oh, in yeah. shooting this. Um, the uh, having the um, people, the, the two people talking off center or behind stuff, or you know, a kind of away from the action, sort of emphasizing the the feel of secret meetings and uh, trying to get the truth out of one another. Um, there's the fact that uh, when Londo is denying everything to the Drazi, um, they carefully shoot it so that you are constantly seeing Londo's reflection yes. or that portrait of Londo, but not necessarily Londo's own face. Um, yeah, the, the opening the opening shot is yeah. really masterful. It's like a tiny little mirror with a reflection of mm-hmm. real Londo's face. But it, the way that it's shown, it's kind of over that giant picture of him right. that's on the wall. And then the camera pans over to the real... Oh, it was just... That was gorgeous. And you know, yeah. I feel sorry for Londo in this because he <laughs> has been so deceitful, so just plain evil in moments in the preceding three years... He's finally back in civilization. He's he, he's out of the wilderness. He's, I guess we could say, on the side of the angels now to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. But but you gotta lie for me, dude. But you, but he, yeah, he can't he can't. He's finally to the point where he doesn't feel like he has to lie or uh, or attack anymore, and he can't. But do wait. It. <laughs> Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. That's 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 awesome. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he is so frustrated with Sheridan because he's you know he was wary of allowing the White Star fleet on, and we it wasn't ever made clear in the previous episode that he and Jakar had said yes. We had to get the exposition bomb from Zach to uh, right. put a pin in that one. <laughs> so he goes through all of this internal angst, I assume, and then finally says yes. We'll put the fleet on our borders because Sheridan wants us to and because it will be great and symbolic and helpful. Wait, I can't tell it now. I, I love have to that. say we I have to say we didn't or yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I I completely agree with you Erica. It's the bone great bones uneven execution. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and I wonder Shannon is is right that the direction really helps. I wonder how much I would have liked this story if it would have been done by a first-time director, somebody who is less um, masterful, I like that word, uh, than Mike Vehar because I feel like his excellent direction and even just the lighting, which Stephen pointed mm-hmm. out in a bunch of scenes, really yeah. made this feel more sort of professional. He was pointing out the uh, the voice of the resistance set and he was just like, did you notice how much better that set? It's exactly the same set that they've been using. It just looked it looked more real and, yeah. and legit yeah, it than it has busier. ever before. It was yeah. it was just like the lighting was just spot on and and Steven really liked this episode and I'm wondering how much that is just because of Mike Vehar. I feel like the goofiness of mostly the uh, the League of Non-Aligned Worlds was the ki- I was expecting that to be the kind of thing that would bother him the way it sort of bothered me a little bit but mm-hmm. I suspect he was watching the camera movements and lighting and stuff <laughs> so much that he was distracted from the over the topness and uh, and ended up really quite enjoying this. You okay. know, I wonder, 
I was actually coming at it from almost the opposite angle. I think we're going to need the help of our listeners in the uh, in, in the conversation threads at b5audioguide.com on this one. I don't recall any previous Vehar-directed episodes that had such strong comedy undercurrents. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if a different director would have been able to modulate the actors a little better. Yeah, that's interesting because I know that, that some of the episodes that he've, he's done have had some really amazing scenes from an actor perspective, but those have been more uh, sub- sedate, I guess, or, or emotionally. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah. wonder if it's just that his comedy is not necessarily his sweet spot. So if a comedy director had come in, we might have been happier and Stephen might have been unhappier. <laughs> Good point. We'll never know. Well, actually, I'm pulling up the Babylon 5 Wikia right now as you guys were talking to try and pull up <laughs> Vehar and get the list of episodes that he's directed so far. Uh, there was a late delivery from Avalon had had moments b- between Jakar and uh, and Arthur. That's true. And um, some of those were truly, truly excellently funny. But I think there was such an undercurrent yeah. of pathos in that story right. that that is what he focused on. And mm-hmm. and that's why the that's why the funny was so good it was because yeah. it, I felt like the pathos was sort of more primary and we really don't have um, on this side of the plot we really don't have that in this one yeah I'm looking because he yeah comes the Inquisitor War Without End um, mm-hmm. yeah those yeah, are ship, sort ship of, of tears big... messages from Earth yeah most of mm-hmm. these are fairly heavy hitting um, anything else about this side of the plot before we go over to Mimbar. Can I just say that Marcus, I loved his delivery. He yeah. He wanted to shoot a bunch of rocks and then leave. She's <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yep. That yeah. Was, that, was almost, that was almost worth Sheridan not telling anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. Uh, well, then we will jump over to uh, the other plot where we have um, Delenn is now trying to head off uh, Mimbar falling into com- complete civil war. Um, and by doing so, she reaches out to what she thinks is the one member of the warrior cast who might actually come and talk to her because, you know, he he never backs down from a challenge. Uh, this was one thing that was super interesting because towards the beginning when she's first talking about him and to him, I had in my notes, you know, Delin knows Naroon. She knows she's got to throw a challenge at him to get his attention. And damned if like, you know, 20 minutes later, there's a line of dialogue and Naroon says exactly <laughs> that. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I was so happy to see his name appear in the credits. I was just like, yes, mm-hmm. because his his performances in, in every other episode that he's been in have just been really excellent. So I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what he does this time. And wow, every single scene between John Vickery and Mira Furland was just so intense. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I certainly don't ship those characters at all, but the... But you could. Well, you you could sort of, but it was more like two two equals, two sort of like intellectual and political equals battling um, or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, bantering one of the two. And it was, oh, it was just so delightful. I was kind of on the edge of my seat simply for the, just the the acting that was, Mm -hmm. oh. John Vickery elevates Babylon 5 every time he's on. Mm -hmm. Every time. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And he's got some sweet, sweet shoulder pads, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I also like, you know, not just uh, not just the fact, you know, that John Vickery's that damn good and, you know, brings a lot to it. But um, we've mentioned before how um, JMS was thinking about uh, the Eastern Europe situations that were going on not long before. Uh, Mira Ferlin and her husband leaving Europe to get away from those conflicts and giving her the dialogue, the opportunity to actually voice what she genuinely is feeling about her own homeland just gives so much more weight to her performance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yep, they were it's, both great. It's, it's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. Um, I love that moment when uh, the warrior cast and the religious cast are just sort of staring at each other along the, cor- along the corridor. Uh, mm-hmm. wait, waiting for uh, Delin to get there, and yeah. Oh yeah, the better... cuts. Oh my god, the cuts of her marching in. I yeah, I mentioned I wrote that down too because that just felt like so Star Wars in a way, you know. Just you know, every they're waiting on either side for the person who's going to come in and take charge, and then her marching down the hall with the, her own people behind her. I loved that bit. It's also a pretty strong parallel to Sheridan returning to Babylon Five from Zahadum. That's true. And and this this brings it right back to the whole Delin is a power player, Delin is a leader, Delin is a badass, you know. Um mm-hmm. it's we 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 are getting this. Uh we have her, you know, fretting about her beautiful city in flames early on, but she's steely throughout this episode. She is. And that the that opening of that scene. Actually Steven was he wasn't as uh as big on that part, he kind of wondered if maybe there had been some sort of a miscommunication between Mike Vehar and uh, the editor, whose name escapes me at the moment, because he 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 felt like that that first sort of the shot of them standing in the hallway waiting was like one grand possible take, and then they kept cutting back and forth to to Delenn, you know, marching and stuff, and he just he didn't feel like that kind of flowed as well as he as well as he thought Mike Vehar usually did, but I I still liked it, and I thought that it was yeah you have this. This, you know, real tension, these two factions who are facing facing off against each other. But here we have this side of this side of the plot in this story isn't an over the top funny one. It's it's a dr- dramatic sort of thing. And 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 yet I think it has some of the funniest moments because you have Narun sort of deflating, not really deflating the tension in the room, but deflating the tension of, of the viewer because his delivery of, you know, I would be very worried to be alone with one of the warrior cast. It's just, oh, mm-hmm. it's just dripping with sarcasm. And and I, I almost laughed out loud. Maybe I did laugh out loud because <laughs> because that was, it, it lightened the tension just a little bit from, from our end, but obviously not in, in, mm-hmm. in story. So it worked for me very, very well. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I liked about this storyline is it's sort of like um, a little tiny microcosm of the bigger storyline that JMS wanted to present with all of Babylon 5. Uh, the idea of winning is easy, governing's harder, because, you know, they've, we've won the Shadow War in the, in the middle of Season 3, and things gonna, every, everything's going to work out, right? No, we have, you know, so many different planets now in turmoil uh, as a result of the Shadow War, or next to the shadow war in the case of earth um things like that so um the fact that delenn has to now take action to try and wrestle mimbar back um from from the brink uh war has broken out people are dying 
um, over the lack of a great council holding them together now. Um, and which is something that she did, as Lanier points out, you know, Valen said it was going to happen. You know, you can't take the blame for all this. Uh, but now she's got to deal with the aftermath. I love how she sort of admits that she assumed that prophecy would all work its, work itself out. Mm-hmm. In part, she broke the Grey Council because she was fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And then she remembers that Valen only knows what Sinclair knew, and she can't accept she can't expect it all to work itself out anymore. She's got mm-hmm. she's the one who has to deal with the consequences of what she did. Um, so that I thought that that was really telling, and she admits that to Nunarun says, "But we've got to we've got to fix the problems right now." I love the scene with them in Delenn's quarters where, mm-hmm. you know, the the mutual respect and uh, it is so good. It is just so good. I also like the fact that JMS plays fair um, and shows that it doesn't matter what side of a conflict you're on. There are going to be people who go too far. I um, have forgotten you know, that the warrior cast that- dude was going to clock Naroon. Yeah, I mean, that's just a tiny little, you know, hey, remember this? Because we've shown in the past that the warrior cast that has people who are too extreme. And uh, we've seen that before in the show. Uh, But yeah, JMS has that one tiny little bit to say, you know, hey, you know, remember, there are warriors who, you know, want nothing more than total domination. And it looks like Naroon is caving. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to attack him. But then for the religious cast so far, most of what we've seen from the side of the religious caste has been they're the intelligent ones. They're the spiritual ones. They're going to always make the right decision. Uh-uh. No guarantees. No mm-hmm. guarantees whatsoever when some people's beliefs are pushed that far against the wall. And we've um, seen sort of a hint of that before, you know, when we had had Delenn discovering the truth about um, the, the truth about uh, humanity um, and human DNA being mixed with, with Minbar DNA and stuff. So, but we've never seen anything quite this blatant and yeah, in the face. Yeah, that, um, that, that, that I don't remember that, that storyline leading to um, members of the religious cast looking to kill everyone on a ship yeah to, no to basically we're gonna we're gonna marry celeste this ship and never be seen mm-hmm. again and somehow that's going to guarantee us victory mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of interesting too the way the two the two plans are are sort of very fitting for the different i mean maybe maybe clocking Narun wasn't exactly a plan that might have been a heat of the moment <laughs> sort of a thing but you have the the religious cast choosing to do something that will just sort of very quietly and we hope peacefully uh, just take everybody out and the ship is just going to d- drift away into into history. Uh, and then on the warrior cast side, we have a, a moment that Steven really, really loved um, because the, you get this awesome shot. It's pretty much in the dark. You've got uh, mm-hmm. bright light on Naroon and the camera, you know, the, the cuts and everything. It's just mm-hmm. really, really great. Steven just, he just, he just yelled. He's like, sweet. Look at that. <laughs> Directing. That was so awesome. And he put his <laughs> hands in the air. He was really excited. And I was too, because I had also forgotten that was going to happen. Right. And it was a great moment and it was made even better by the awesome directing. So thumbs up to everybody on that part. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about irony again because okay. it's this this plot is also got some of the same DNA as the other plot. 
particularly when Delenn is saying things about how surprised she is about, or, or how not surprised, how the erratic warrior cast would have done mm-hmm. such a thing, and the religious cast members are sort of looking at each other going, oh, right. yes. Oh, stuff. They aren't thinking stuff. And um, <laughs> and then again at Lanier's bedside, uh, there is a load of there is a load of uh, um, dramatic irony. Yeah, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when we get to the end and Lanier is dressing down uh, the religious cast conspirators. Mm-hmm. Uh, complete with that. Oh, fine. I'll make the I'll make the goodbye gesture. Uh, right. goodbye yeah, I can you. just all I can be bothered I, is to flip my hands a little. Yes, yeah, I don't. Was, I don't. Yeah, it's not that just that brilliant. I'm tired. I'm really pissed off at you. But <laughs> but Lanier says that you know he did it for Delin and he protected their honor for her because it would break her to know just what her own people were capable of. And given all of the heavy irony lines that Delin delivers during this episode, I don't want to believe that of the character. I want to believe that Delin knows exactly what they were up to and said the things that were uh, calculated to shame the others. I don't like the thought of Delin being this pure innocent and that's what makes her so special because that's the complete opposite of what we're getting from Sheridan in this episode that he's he's being the manipulator the tactician you know he's getting stuff done I want to believe that Delenn's just that good at it but I can't tell from this episode from the script and the direction whether mm-hmm. right whether Lanier has an unrealistic hero worshipy idea of um of Delenn or whether Straczynski is really trying to say that Dolin is just that idealistic. I don't think she's that idealistic anymore. As if you're looking at it from you know the last several seasons and and her growth, I I think she's totally capable of seeing exactly what you were gonna do and laying laying you out um, without saying directly to you, you know I know what you did, but this is bad. She's capable of it. I'm, but like you, I'm just not sure if in this specific episode she twigged to just how desperate um, the people on that ship were. That yeah, I don't so, know. Yeah. So is the are the lines that she delivers that are supposed to have such dramatic impact? Is that the script being overbaked <laughs> the same way that the Sheridan plot was overbaked, or is <sighs> is is you know? Who's in charge here, Doyle or Watson? I don't know. I think it's supposed (laughs) to hinge when Lanier describes what happened and and, and lies and and, and says that, you know, he just found a valve open that was about to release uh, fuel into the the respiration system. You know, I don't think he ever actually lied. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He deceived. He deceived. Right. And it's um, okay because he was yeah. helping people save face. Right. I know. But I, I kind of wonder whether maybe that was JMS attempting, like, Delin would normally spot it if Lanier is hiding something from her. And I don't know if that's just, you know, if it's, you know, not quite pulling it off in the directing acting department or what. 
whether that was supposed to be a lampshade that got, got knocked over in execution. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. I, th- I think it's... The way that I always read it every other time was just that Delenn is that that pure and 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 not so much that she's not savvy enough to have recognized it, but that she her focus is elsewhere in this true. episode. She Very is true. really like this is a big big deal for her, and she is trying to get Narun on side, and she's got whatever plan she's got to try to try to save. Minbar and that is where her focus is and she's she's sort of doing that thing that leaders sometimes do and just sort of seeing the people who are on her side her family the folks around her as her support system and maybe not paying super close attention to their specific you know actions and needs and that sort of thing uh, because I feel like if she had been paying attention she's a savvy enough and and you know, sort of warm enough character that she probably would have recognized these uh, sort of the body language and just noticed that that basically people were unhappy with her and maybe would have been able to head things off to start with. And but this time watching it, I, I didn't really think of it until you mentioned that chip. But I think the one moment where it could possibly change over is is Lanier's line where he says, I think we can be fairly certain that the mm-hmm. warrior cast didn't have anything to do with yeah, that. Yeah, so that was I think part of it. Yeah. If she if she does twig, I think it would probably be at that moment because Lanier is somebody, especially at that moment, that she is paying close attention to. So she she might have figured it out. But I think that most of the, the lines she was delivering were actually just dramatic irony where we we know that mm-hmm. that what she is saying is so the opposite of what has happened. But I don't I, I think at those times she really believed it. And certainly I, I think that the show is is wanting us to believe that because we never really get anything to to counteract it. And yeah. most of the time when any of the characters are being smarter than the rest of the characters on the screen, we get confirmation of it later. And I think the fact that we don't this time, yes, it leaves it open for headcanon. So you can believe that all the way through she knew what she was doing. But I don't think that that was the intent of the show, which is kind of too bad because I like the idea that that Delenn is is the best. And <laughs> but I'm, I'm also OK with thinking that she was just really focused on the warrior cast. And that's why she just didn't sort of notice what was going on behind her. Yeah, I just don't feel good about the notion of innocence and naivety being part of her strengths, you know. Although that seems yeah. to be what Lanier thinks. Yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and of yeah. course, and then I don't he know would. how I felt about him him protecting her like with with lies. That was it was very sweet. You know, Stephen Stephen was just like good old Lanier when he was in the tube, you know, saving everybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, and that's the one other thing about this uh particular storyline is that we get um we get bits of um how Lanier sees Delenn and how Delenn sees Lanier. Um, like mm-hmm. we, we've gotten that before, but like not necessarily in the same episode right there, almost back to back, uh, where we can compare and contrast, uh, the, you know, the idea that Lanier's, and it always seems to be that Lanier feels like he has to protect Delenn kind of from, from her own people more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he doesn't necessarily feel that he has to protect her from, um outside forces from the shadow war he sees that she has to be a leader there he doesn't like it um he tries to help but it's situations like this when we are dealing with internal minbar stuff and internal religious caste stuff that he seems to really want to step up and protect his image of her as 
you know, truly believing in the higher ideals that we represent. And we, you know, and you guys aren't doing it, but I'm, I'm not going to let her know that because I, I can't ruin your image. You know, that that kind of sort of flows along with with what I was saying about her focus being elsewhere. I think mm-hmm. quite often, and I mean, that's sort of how we got to this situation, or at least her her jumping into this Mimbar situation so late in the game, because right. her focus really has been elsewhere mm-hmm. all along. So it does kind of make sense that, that she is focused outward. She's focused toward the rest of the universe and the shadows and the, the earthers and all that kind of stuff. And Lanier, who has been in school or whatever it was <laughs> that he was temple, temple. Yeah. yes uh m- so much more recently and has spent more recent time on minbar that he would have more of a focus on on that side of things so it it does kind of make sense that the delen has has left minbar and has these sort of you know she has these perfect thoughts of what the religious cast are and what the minbari are and it's kind of an interesting parallel that Lanier sort of has the same kind of thoughts about her like she mm-hmm. thinks she thinks the minbari are, are just you know her religious caste are, are her family and they can sort of do no wrong in her eyes and that seems to be exactly what Linear thinks about Delenn which is kind of interesting yeah and then we have of course uh, Delenn you know talking about Linear about you know seeing him you know not only as you know her protege that you know Ducat you know took her in and made her what she is and she wants to turn around and do the same thing with Linear and yet you know, she sees him as this kind of this this beacon. You know that that he makes her be a better person uh, because she wants to step up and do the right thing in her mentoring of him. And yeah, I think we saw another parallel there with with Londo and Veer. We saw a lot of that. We got you know how much Veer cares for Londo and thinks that that Londo can be good. And we really saw toward the end. Uh, of the whole Centauri thing, how much Londo sort of relies on Veer and what mm-hmm. kind of a relationship that they have. Up until now, we've really only kind of seen Lanier stepping up for Delenn. We hadn't as much seen just how much she relies on him. I mean, he is mm-hmm. a real support for her. And that's something that, that I guess I hadn't really realized that because she hasn't vocalized it on screen. So it's nice to see that that, that streak goes both ways. Yeah. It's almost like for Veer, it's hope in Londo Mm -hmm. because Veer typically has a fairly clear sense (laughs) of just what Londo's (laughs) done and what Londo is capable of and Veer's constantly trying to get Londo to redeem himself kind of Mm -hmm. with uh with Lanier it's more faith Mm -hmm. she doesn't need to redeem herself because she's already good she's already perfect Mm -hmm. Except right. that, except that uh, she is too naive to accept that her people will do the worst, or are capable of bad things, and damned if Lanier is going to spoil that for her. Yeah, I think the the only part of that that I have a problem with, I don't, I don't have a problem with her thinking that her people are good and that that's that's a good thing that's fine it's Lanier's idea that it would break her if she found right. out the truth that's the right. only bit that I sort of have a problem with because I I don't think it would yeah it is overprotection in my opinion it, it is and then Naroon gets in a damn flyer and f- goes away <laughs> Stephen was just like oh he lied and here I thought they were going to be friends <laughs> <laughs> it's just like he sounded so dejected, <laughs> which I was yeah. too. 
Yeah, I yeah, remember that. That, that is that is exactly the kind of scene that just makes makes your stomach sink. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we had yeah. progress. What things are going on? Damn you, Naroon! <laughs> yeah. But it's drama. It's great I drama. It's, it's great drama. But the first time conflict. I saw this, my heart sank. Yeah, you bastard, Naroon. Indeed. Oh, but he just does it so well. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's Scar, oh. man. He's Scar from The Lion King. He actually was, by the way. On Broadway. Yes, he oh, was. Oh, was he? Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Very nice. Okay. Um, we've mentioned a lot of Stephen's reactions. Was there anything else that uh, we haven't mentioned? Well, afterwards, I, I did my usual. So what did you what'd you think of that one? And in his answer was, that was good. It was all sneaky, manipulating people, a bunch of aliens and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yep. And then he said, and of course, Mike Vehar, first appearance of him in season four, don't you know? And thus the best episode of season four. And <laughs> I was like, really? Do you really think this is the best episode of season four? And he said, well, it's the best directed, that's for sure. And then he stopped. And he's like, well, that Kim Friedman one was also really good. But <laughs> and then he, he pointed out how the difference between the sets, the same sets in this episode and other ones were like night and day, almost literally, because you really had such a different difference in the lighting right and then i was like okay anything else and he just sat for a second and then he just went vehar 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 <laughs> and then and then he pointed out also that it wasn't um that it wasn't just camera angles that make a well-directed episode right. that it really is you know sort of the the feel of the sets and the lighting and the style and stuff and and he was just really 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 enjoying it so um he i think he knows that there are there's at least another one uh mike vehar episode if not a couple in this season and he because he accidentally discovered that um uh, so he's he's looking forward to him okay uh anything else before we go through a jump gate that we haven't touched on nope let's do it Okay. Well, then, for those of you who are watching the show for the very first time around, uh, this is the point where you get off, and we will see you next time when we talk about moments of transition. Uh, As always, you can talk at us on Twitter and Tumblr and uh, at B5 Audio Guide. And, of course, we have our website, b5audioguide.com, with our chat threads, uh, both spoiler safe for those who are watching the first time around and spoiler full for those who have seen it before and want to hash it all out. We have wonderful conversations there. We we, we love our listeners. We love the folks who come and talk at our website because they come up with just so much great stuff. Thank you. Keep doing it. Um, And with that, let's hit a jump gate. Spoiler, everybody. Spoiler, everybody. Naroon's not a bastard. Right. (laughs) Yes. Very next episode. It was the plan all along. (laughs) It took me a second to remember that. Yeah. (laughs) It was just like, oh, shoot. I I wasn't thinking shoot. And then I was like... (laughs) Oh, shoot. I wasn't thinking shoot. So that was a good moment. But yes, very next episode again because of the are we getting a fifth season problem. Uh, the Mimbari Civil War gets wrapped up next episode when Delenn and the warrior uh, Shakiri, Shakari, Shakira, whoever, um, they, waka, they waka. basically... They basically play a game of chicken in which one of them winds up burning to death, except it's actually Naroon who jumps in and, and takes the bullet. Um, with so. the with the greatest exit for the <laughs> warrior cast hero ever. Yeah. 
maybe mm-hmm. maybe and in my memory it's great uh we'll see we'll see how it was yeah that's I'm, I'm i'm kind of like you know half half trying to remember you know yes it was dramatic but you know oh god what are the, what are the special effects gonna look like <laughs> so <laughs> they're gonna look so, yes. worse because of these dvd transfers i can tell you that i know i know um Oh, the so, other yes. thing that I wanted to uh, mention uh, from our pre-jump gate was uh, Stephen's admiration of Lanier. <laughs> yeah, he is He is really falling into the same, I don't want to say trap, but yeah, it's a trap. He's falling into the same it's trap. It's JMS's trap. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just, he's he's really, you know, team Lanier and thinking that he's just a sweet stand-up guy. And I'm I'm really interested to see how he accepts or doesn't accept the sort of turn toward the end and because you know like we've talked about before when I was watching this you know back in the day I was much more innocent and naive and the world has changed so much since then I'm just wondering if he will sort of be savvy enough from having lived in in the world for this long to kind of recognize the nice guy problem or if he will just be like what the hell just happened (laughs) so right well and when Shannon and I watch Babylon 5 for the podcast. Uh, I hate having to pause the episode. Every mm-hmm. once in a while, we have a family crisis or a Phone call. cat, yeah. or a cat lo- launches himself at something or something like that, and we'll have <laughs> uh-huh. to pause watching. Every, only, o- only once in a great while will I pause it and sort of take in something that I just watched. And when Delenn tells Naroon that she needs someone who does what he believes is right after thinking about it, not because it's expected of him. She is just yeah. like, <laughs> she just lays out the Lanier problem right there in ba- big neon signs for those of us who know how this thing is going to end. And I just paused the video and I looked back at Shannon and I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, Lanier has this hero worship thing going on for Delin. He has this unquestioning loyalty as well as this, I have to be the nice guy. I have to do the right thing and everything must be perfect and right kind of thing going on. And in the end, Narun is really better for Delin than Lanier. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Shannon, you you made a you actually yeah. took it a little further. Well, I mean, I I went in that direction, but I also went in the relationship direction because you know Delenn falls in love with Sheridan, who was someone else who met her on equal ground and challenged mm-hmm. her when she needed it, and you know after thinking things through takes his position and believes in the rightness of his cause. So yeah, that also spoke to me as the contrast between Sheridan and Lanier as well as Narun and Lanier. So Yeah. There's a reason there are sexual harassment laws, you guys. Like <laughs> that's when you have when you're starting from a place of such unequal power, uh there's you know, I'm not saying that relationships can't spawn out of that. That's certainly a thing that happens, but that's a big hurdle that you have to get past. Otherwise you're gonna end up with an an unbalanced relationship and um and an unbalanced balanced power dynamic just just throughout and i think that's a really big problem with the uh the relationship between those two whether whether it's emotional in in the way that Lanier sort of wants it to be or even just emotional from the Delenn side you know she she sees him as a support which is that's a nice thing but at the same time like that's not 
that's not a, that's not an equal relationship at no. all. No, no. And to Delenn's credit, you know, she she may take Lanier's attentions for granted to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. She, although I think there's a fifth season episode where she pretty much says that uh, she chose to ignore it because it would be not proper for her to acknowledge it and not proper mm-hmm. to um, have him entertain those notions. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, that and I'm I'm, pop, I'm mischaracterizing that possibly a little bit. The, the, I think the thing that sort of saves it for me is the fact that she clearly has his best interests sort of as a Mimbari at heart. She, she mm-hmm. states that she's trying to, like you said earlier, I think, Shannon, mold yeah. him the way Ducat molded her. So so yes, she sees him as a support, but she also is is a, a teacher and a mentor for right. him, yeah. which is yeah. a very different... that seriously. Mm-hmm. De- very different kind of way of looking at the relationship than you get from the, <laughs> from the bottom up, sort of, with Lanier looking at her. So she's... Her her goal is is to make him an equal, really, in, in the end of things. So that's that's laudable. Yeah, pity it's not going to work out that way. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, something else I um, noticed. I think we mentioned this last episode, but I think here we really see how you know Sheridan has made the first official step uh, toward creating the Interstellar Alliance. I mean, he did it in a backdoor, backhanded way, but <laughs> now for the first time since the Shadow War, he's got everybody on board for mutual benefit. And it is kind of a delightful way of doing yeah. that. And I I was thinking about that through this episode. Like, yep, that is a definite step in this direction. And he really has, you know, in a Machiavellian sort of way, tricked them into taking the first step on that road as opposed to dragging them along right. the way that they had to do to get everybody on side for the Shadow War. Right. Yeah. All of the comedy manipulations to get them to line up, um, you know, it's, it's fun and all that. Um, it does make the point that these kinds of alliances just don't happen. Jakar's mm-hmm. old line about enlightened self-interest. You also take a look at what was said earlier about the Mimbari civil structure being held together by Valen and that when mm-hmm. that when that when left, Valen's knowledge ran out. When Valen's knowledge <laughs> ran out and when the Grey Council's rule um is disrupted, you know, all of the tensions come out. Next season, all of the lingering, of the lingering resentment that's been built up against the Centauri, all of the manipulations, you know, the Interstellar Alliance comes very close to falling apart. And in fact, uh, Centauri Prime leaves it um, Mm -hmm. because of these sorts of things going on. So it's actually kind of helpful, as ham-handed as it is, to go through the motions of getting all of these governments that don't trust each other into a United Nations kind of framework. Because uh, God knows, even in the mid-90s, we weren't exactly um, starry-eyed optimists about the um, about the power of the United Nations as an organization mm-hmm. or anything like that. But anyway, it's important to get all of those distrusts and all the manipulations necessary to create this organization out there so that when the organization fails in season five to protect uh, Centauri Prime and all that and to keep the peace in that regard, um, it doesn't just come out of out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, and the last thing I had, at least as far as uh, spoilers for future episodes, I believe this is the first time we have heard of Rebo and Zooty. Zooty. Um, yep. That will that will come in the form of Penn and Teller in season five, uh, in the only episode not written by JMS after season two, uh, and and it was written by Neil Gaiman. So mm. the Day of the Dead. Um, yep. Oh, now <laughs> I need to. Now I need to. Re- remind myself whether Gaiman wrote Neverwhere for the BBC before or after this aired. Uh, before this, this episode? I want, I want Neverwhere to is 1996. Af- yeah, Probably I want to say before. after. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did Neverwhere before Babylon 5. Okay. Because uh, I, I, so. don't, I don't know why I had it in my head that um, that this was his television debut, but it's not. Okay. Hmm. But yeah, well, well. and of course, um, they discovered as the, after they hired Penn and Teller to play Rebo and Zudi that even playing another character, Teller will not speak on camera. Yeah, that is not his thing. So they had to do a improvise. They, they had to do an improvised Harlan Ellison voice uh, out of a out of a machine uh, for Zudi's lines, which was kind of odd. But yeah. there you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm I, interested I, to see what Stephen is going to think of that episode. <laughs> if I recall correctly, neither one of you was a big fan of Nightmare and Silver, the second Neil Gaiman episode for Doctor Who. I I think I liked it better than some, but I mostly liked the Clara stuff. Anything else was not entirely great, so... Yeah, this, yeah. Th- this game and episode is going to be a very, very significant departure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. The last thing I wanted to mention, uh, just going back to Delenn for a second, I realized that in spoiler space, we've talked a lot about Sheridan and, you know, how once the war is over, governing is hard and, and he doesn't always make, make the right choices. I really like that that we get a little bit of Delenn also not being infallible here. Mm-hmm. As we, you know, I couldn't point it out in, in non-spoiler space when, when you were talking about that, Chip, but about how she really expected life to just go on after the prophecy was over. And I think every time we get something like that, it really does make her feel like a more full and whole character that she mm-hmm. just, she had this misconception. She, she isn't the person on the pedestal that the Lanier thinks she is because she's, right. she's, she's a person. She's a person right. who is not always perfect. And I love that. But she doesn't make as grave mistakes as Sheridan does. I don't think. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Well, you know, I think she had, um, you know, we we don't know that Sheridan had his own Ducat somewhere <laughs> helping him <laughs> sort of figure all this out. I'm, True. You know, Sheridan, cer- certainly he was he was a starship captain. He 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 was a military leader. He he did not expect to be thrust into actually governing things the way he wound up being. Du- so, yeah, I don't think uh, Kosh was giving him uh, politics lessons. Right. <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> um anything else starfire so. wheel starfire mm-hmm. wheel next time yes yeah mm-hmm. next episode oh get- oh oh and steven will be very happy that there will be some heavy lita stuff going oh that's on right too. yes oh, right. some very sad lita stuff going on as oh. well as uh, because bester will be back and she's going to have to make a deal mm-hmm. yep 
Okay, and that is Moments of Transition, which is the episode we will be talking about next time. Again, uh, come check us out, uh, b5audioguide.com and b5audioguide on Tumblr and Twitter. Uh, Come and talk to us. And until next time, this is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.